Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have created for us, that you have provided the rest for our souls and your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can come and worship you freely, intimately, by his mighty work of redemption. Help us now to come together and remember these things. Remember the worth and significance of your deliverance from the estate of sin and misery into a blessed salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to value it. Help us to orient our lives on it. And help us to love one another in discipleship because of it, Lord. Bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Children, you guys know the drill. You are to go to your Sunday schools. So as a means of recap, I've been out for two weeks. So we began our, uh, our introduction of why we're going to go through the themes of the book of Exodus. Uh, not through the particular book, every chapter, but we're going to go through the book Exodus Old and New by Dr. L. Michael Morales. Because the book of Exodus gives us the framework of what we understand to be redemption and salvation, right? We are given an opportunity today where we use a lot of gospel language and we use the term, you know, gospel, gospel gospel-centered, so on and so forth. But we have an opportunity to rediscover what that term particularly means, but on God's terms, right? Not just our story of coming to understanding that Jesus died for our sins, but understanding what does God mean when he uses the term gospel? What does God mean when he uses terms like deliverance, right? When we, when we think about the prologue of the Ten Commandments, God is referring to this very act of deliverance from Egypt, from the estate of sin and misery into this blessed state, In communion with them, therefore, here are the ten words. So it is God's terms. And and we live in an opportunity today where I think rediscovering those things as a people on a city, on a hill, to be the light unto the nations, we have an opportunity to clarify those things and, and reinvigor the people to rediscover God in his word, not just our experience but in his word, to love his word, to live in his word. And that's why we're going through this book. So chapter one, I just wanted to read a quick quote from the chapter. Dr. Morales says, The opening 11 chapters of the book of Genesis unfold a theological history of humanity that serves as the backdrop for the rest of the Bible's story of redemption, including the role of Israel within that story. This backdrop, as we will see, narrates humanity's exile from God's presence and life-yielding fellowship. Separated from Yahweh God, the fountain of life and being, humanity's condition is one of death. As such, the return to God, namely the exodus, can only be life from the dead, deliverance from death. So in order to understand the basic mechanics and themes of the book of Exodus and what the deliverance from sin is, we have to understand the book of Genesis. It is the backdrop and the beginning. 
of all these things, right? So the book of Genesis, a few words, it, it functions almost like a mini Bible. Because in it, we have all of the major themes of redemption. We have the fall, right? We have creation, fall, and redemption. But we also have the story developed from Adam to Joseph. And in these two figures, we discover what does God mean when he says he's going to redeem his people, right? What is the character that he desires in his image bearers? From Adam, the story develops, and it almost reaches a climax in Joseph. As in, this is the nature of a righteous ruler. And from the line of Judah, there's going to be this Judah king who is going to rule with the scepter, and he is going to rule over all of the nations. So, check this out. Somebody, uh, let me see, let me, Dan, can you read to me, can you look for Genesis 3, verse 4? And Jacqueline, can you go to Genesis chapter 50, verses 17 through 20? Okay? Now, these two passages, they function as bookends for the book of Genesis. We see Genesis 3, verse 4, Genesis 50 at the end. And the book of Genesis is going to narrate the dynamics and the growth from the first passage up into the end. So they function as bookends. Dan. Very good. Now, pay attention to this, and you will be like God. That's the center of that verse, is that even though humanity was already created like God, we had his image. But the likeness of God isn't parallel to his authority. It's under his authority, right? So Satan is trying to tempt us. His first attempt is to say, don't be a submitted authority. Be your own authority. So that's what he means when he says you will be like God. And the fall is our desire to be parallel to God, right? Now, let's read Genesis 50, 17 through 20. Jacqueline. Okay, so you will be like God. And then look at what Joseph said in response to his brothers. What does he say? Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? This is important. Because in the, in the fall, we have this desire to be our own authority, to be parallel to God, to make a name for ourselves apart from God. And here is Joseph going through a period of humiliation when he is sold into slavery And through that process of humiliation, God exalts him to the highest position. 
And while having the same opportunity that Adam had in a position of authority, in a position of leadership, what is his attitude towards his brothers? He could have just as easily said, I condemn you for what you did to me. I want nothing to do with you. I curse you. But what does he do? He says, don't be afraid. For am I in the place of God? That's important. Because that humility, that understanding that we are living under the rule of God, Joseph understands, it's not my place to exercise this vengeance on you. It's my place to live unto the face of God in submission to him and in loving submission to him. So God exalts him to a position of authority because of his character. And through it, we get a glimpse of who Christ is going to be. He is the righteous ruler who is submitted and humiliated in our sin. He empathizes with our sin. He who knew no sin is made sin on our behalf. And through that humiliation, he obeys the Father in every aspect of the law. And at every juncture, Christ could condemn us. One word. One word. And all of this would be over. But what most, what matters to Christ and what mattered to Joseph was obedience to God, was loving God. So we have the bookends. We have this desire in Genesis 3 for knowledge that doesn't pertain to us, for being like God in the sense of a parallel authority. And we see in Genesis 50, in contrast to Adam, Joseph exhibits this godly character. What God ultimately desires in his image is for men and women who live joyfully in their place under his rule and authority. For am I in the place of God? All right. And in Genesis 49, just in passing, Genesis 49, verse 10, I'm just going to read it. We see also the purpose of God in raising this righteous ruler that we see in Joseph. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What's interesting, and in passing, I want to mention this, that although Joseph is the character that we see as a type of Christ, but it's from Judah's line that the Savior comes. Anybody have any, any thoughts or ideas why that is? It is Joseph who goes through the humiliation, exaltation dynamic. It is Joseph who, who displays the Christ-like character, yet it's Judah who gets the birthright. So there's a distinction. Just a quick note. Joseph, because of his godly character, gets the double-portioned blessing. From him stem two tribes. Okay? But Judah gets the birthright. The reason why, and, and this is something that we discuss at seminary, <laughs> is that Judah, although he was a deceiver, although he was guilty, he offers himself in the place of sacrifice for his youngest brother. Very quietly, he tells his father, if he does not fulfill his task, he offers himself in place of his youngest brother. He goes through this character arc from betraying Joseph to saying, you know what, I've learned my lesson. This, is, this was terrible. It's always been terrible. That repentant 
servant, self-sacrifice nature came from Judah. So in both figures, from Judah, we have this quiet self-sacrifice for his kin. But we also see in Joseph the humiliation and exaltation narrative. So in both figures, we have the Christ. All right. So that's why Genesis is important. This is why, <laughs> this is why it's the framework, and, and it gives us such a rich history and story and insight. God desires a righteous ruler. God desires a king, but a king after his own heart, who does not desire to be equal in that sense of, of a competing authority, but one that's in submission, out of love, not out of force, but because he is God. Just that. He is our father, and we love him, and I love him, and I want to live for him. Period. Right? But for today, or we've already got 15 minutes, we're just going to look at quickly at the creation narrative. All right? So we went through basic mechanics of the entire book. Right? So let's focus a little bit on the creation narrative. So God, according to Dr. Morales, in a very basic way, when we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 2, we see that God is portrayed portrayed as a workman at the most fundamental and, and analogical level for us to understand what God is doing in creation. Dr. Morales tells us he is a workman and he is... As a workman, he is building a house, a three-story house. He builds the heavens, the lands, and the seas. Okay? So, a workman that is building. And if we see at the very bottom of the human experience, what there is nothing more fundamental than that. We are builders. That's what we do. Every day we get up and we build, whether it's our relationships, that's immaterial, or it's cities. Right? And... We do it at an established form, in seed form, and then over time, we see the development and the growth into full fruition. So that's what building entails. There's a process. There's a caregiving element to this, right? Why? Because God is a workman, and as such, he determines the manner upon which he's going to work. For an example, a lot of the kids' type of questions, when we try to explain the creation narrative to our children says, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and it was so. I said, but dad, well, why couldn't he just do everything, and that's it? Isn't he all powerful? Right? Why can't he just snap his fingers, and everything is done and made in its, in its ultimate state, right? When we see the garden, we see seeds. In the garden, there are seeds, and the garden itself is a seed unto the world, right? There's nothing really fully developed. It's just this very basic foundation that we're going to work through, right? We're going to build. I says, but that doesn't make any sense to me, right? I say, well, it's the manner upon which God makes things. In his good pleasure, he decided to build or create an established seed. And through it, we show the character. What do we think about when we think about the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control. All of these things are virtues that we display when we are caregiving in our building. Right? Think of the basic act of 
going through a garden. Every day you water it. Every day you care for it. Every day you make sure it's okay. So what matters most to God in his workmanship, in his building, is the manner in which it is done. The character in which it is done. The virtue in it. That's what God loves, those details. And the way that you're going to display those things is in the process. It's not just like, I'm going to snap, oh, I'm going to make a building, and it has no weaknesses. It has no delicacies. It has no vulnerabilities. That's not the way God makes things. He makes things delicate. There are things at the center of what he makes that are vulnerable, and they can be exploited. But it's those very vulnerable delicate and intimate parts that makes the strong man strong to protect. Think of the dynamic between the men and the women, right? We protect, we provide, we, prov- we give this structure, but it's for the glory that happens inside. If it was all like made out of tin, right? Pure strength. What is there to protect? Right? So God has a very unique idea of what it means to build and he builds ex nihilo. Anybody know what that means? It's a very big term. Ex nihilo. What? Out of nothing. He creates all things out of nothing. That's important. Why? The cults don't believe that. Mormonism, for an example, believes that matter and God both existed parallel to one another. So God doesn't speak all things into existence from nothing. So, in philosophy, and so on and so forth, if you think in those terms, it's like, how can he create something from nothing? Well, because he's God. <laughs> Simple as that. Right? There are things that he does that is according to his knowledge, and there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. Okay? There are things that are in this realm. I'm trying to explain who God is, but I'm doing it in a creaturely manner. I'm doing it according to the scriptures, but... Very limited. So he works all things from nothing, and he also does it by the catechism language, by the word of his power. In the space of six days, all very good, right? Time's it. So how does he build? He builds all things from nothing, and he builds by the word of his power. Now think of how can we... How can we understand those things? Because we build with our hands, right? Not necessarily so. When I'm speaking, right, what am I doing? I'm communicating ideas to you that are from within, subjective to myself and my experience, into you. And you are coming up through those words with illustrations and ideas and realities to everything that I'm saying. And by the power of speech and language, what can we do? What are we commanded to do in Ephesians 4, verse 16? Right? We are to speak the truth in love, to build one another in the body of Christ who are held together by its joints. But through the speech of love, we are to build. Because speech can build great things. We are, a God, we are, we are children of a God who speaks things into existence. And therefore, we reflect his glory when we speak the truth of the gospel in love. We build great things with our children, in our homes, with our co-workers. When we speak a word of truth and love, 
gospel-centered to this person. And what does that cause? When the Spirit uses that, that causes a radical change in people's lives, physical change in people's lives, when a word of truth and love is spoken. So as God speaks things into existence, we can relate a little bit to that, although I can't create realities. There's a branch in, in Protestantism, you know, declaring realities and so on and so forth. That's an abuse. But what we're saying is that analogically, I'm using that term, but it's like in a way that we can relate to God in a creaturely way, our speech builds life. Okay. What time is it? Keep looking at my watch. The second thing, God orders chaos. Right? The Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos of the waters. He is taking dominion. And he is assessing it. This is important. Okay? So we see that God, when he speaks all things into existence, his, his aim is to order. His aim is to limit. He's taking the potential. Let's not think of chaos necessarily negative. It's unknown. It's potential. It's like a block of stuff that we then, or God, right, takes that block of stuff and he starts to shape it and mold it. And through it, he is giving it its potential. He's giving it its limits, but he's also empowering it to do exactly what it's intended to do. Think of the seas, right? The great waves that kind of wash offshore. It's like they're trying to come into the land, right? But it can't. Why? Because it's limited by the power of God. The very force to do that, but it's up to here. Think of the book of Job, right? When he delimits everything that he did in creation. The wonders that we have no idea how they work. But God, in his workmanship, in his building, in his establishing the seeds, in his care for his creation, he's delimiting, he's empowering, right? He's giving aim and purpose in his dominion. But this is important, because you see the narrative. God says, at, at the end of everything that is made, what does he say? And it was good. That's another kid's question. Why does he have to say that it's good? Isn't God good? Why does he have to repeat himself? Why, why, if he's good, everything he makes is good, why you got to do this again? Right? It's important because assessment, when God stops to see something that he makes, think of, think of it this way. The most perfect being who needs nothing, who has no one existing besides himself, decides to move. Okay? That's an important event. This matters. You and I, we take moving for granted. In fact, we are commanded not to be idle. Why? Because we're sinners. And we need to move. It is a basic requirement that if it is not done, we are probably in sin. When we are not exercising our salvation, when we are not exercising our gifts, when we are not doing all these things that God calls us not to be idle, is precisely because we're sinners. But God, being the perfect being who needs nothing and no one, out of his goodwill and pleasure, decides to make things out of nothing. The assessment, the pause, the look and say, oh, it is good. 
That is important. Because the manner upon which he creates. Go back to that. When we think of power, when we think of sovereignty, almighty, we think snap fingers. No. That's true. But that's not the point. The point is the manner in which he's doing things. He's assessing it. He's taking the time. He's caring for it. Yes, Jackie. Oh, very good. Yes. Yes. Very good. It is. Very. There are two mighty works in Scripture. What are they? One is creation. What's the second one? Redemption. And both of those mighty works have a basic mechanism. It doesn't change. Okay? That's why, and for an example, 2 Corinthians 4, right? We see that Paul is talking and saying that we are, that when God saved us, he declares his marvelous light in the darkness. And when we see Genesis 1, what does he do? Let there be light. When we think about, okay, let's think of order. Let's think of these terms in, in terms of redemption, not just creation. God is ordering the chaos of your sin. When he calls you from the darkness into his marvelous light, what is he doing? Speaking his beautiful word, Jesus Christ, so that you might come from the darkness back into the light. You are separated from it, and he tames you. How? He frees you from the dominion of sin. The spirit of God, the same spirit that hovered over the waters of chaos, he hovers within you, and he takes you from that. And then he sets his limits upon you. He empowers you in your sanctification. And then what happens at the end of time? It is good. When you come into the presence of the Lord in the heavenly council, what is he going to say about you who are in Christ? It is good. I see you. I see my son. And it is good. So God doesn't change. It's just the, the framework, the setting is different. But that's the whole point, isn't it? When the enemy comes and says, I'm going to destroy everything that you made because what you made is vulnerable. It's weak. It's, in, it's not impervious to attack. That's part of Satan's whole psychology. Why would you make such weak things? Right? And what do we see in response? God doesn't change. He humiliates the enemy. Because it is precisely through humiliation, through the weird cross, this death that's going to give life, this weakness, they are going to be made strong. That's incredible. So the cross is not only the climax of, of redemptive history, it's the greatest jokes on Satan scenario. Jokes on you, buddy. You did everything you could to exploit, to deceive, and all you did was work right into my plan. You don't understand how this works. It's not just about force. It's not just about, you know, how... How, how can you make something like this with such delicacies? We're going to look at the alienation, uh, Lord willing, next week. But let's keep in mind, 
I'm going to have to go through the Sabbath too because I haven't even gotten there. We'll do it next week. We'll keep going from there. But let's keep our minds in how God makes things. This is important. If there's anything that you remember, anything that I said here, is it's not just about the power of God. It is the way that God does things. This is why I love being Presbyterian. Because due process. I know that it can be bureaucratic, all that kind of thing. But it is based on a principle that things are meant to be done right. They're meant to be done right. And when we do things right with our heart, when we love our brother and we seek to for unity, the unity and peace of the church, through the process and the way that we do it in honor of our God, it's reflecting that. It's not just what is made. It's the how that is made. The purpose, the manner upon which is made. That caregiver, creator. That builder who establishes a seed and likes to tend to it and water it and every day show that consistency, which is the fruits of the Spirit. What are the qualifications of being an elder if it's not just some form of self-control? It kind of functions around that. Is he a temperate man? In season, out of season. Is he consistent? Does he love consistently? Is he patient consistently? Day in, day out. Faithful. That's God. Amen. Any questions? We'll keep going through next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you because you are faithful to your promises and what you declare will be. And you have declared us from all eternity that all those who believe in your son Jesus Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. And by the work of the Holy Spirit that orders us, that, that saves us from our darkness into your marvelous light and is empowering us and limiting us so that we might find in you a good assessment in Christ, Lord. We thank you because you are the God of creation and you do not change. Everyone else changes but you. And we can take comfort no matter the seasons and the trials that we go through, that we can depend on an unchangeable God and his unchangeable wisdom. And we thank you for that security. Bless this time of fellowship in Christ's name. Amen.